This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's Sunday, May 26th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. President Trump received a rock star welcome from the host country of one of America's closest allies. So far, it's been a weekend of trade meetings with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, plus some summer recreation Japanese style. The trip appears to be cooling off what has been a fiery start to summer back in Washington. I declassified, I guess, potentially millions of pages of documents. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. And that's what worries intelligence officials, as Attorney General Barr now has access to some of the country's top secrets as he opens an investigation into how the Russia probe began. The president authorized 1,500 troops to the Middle East in light of potential new threats from Iran, just after ordering 2,000 out of Syria. And he did an end run around Congress by following through on an earlier promise to sell arms to the Saudis. And then there's that feud with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I wish that his family or his administration or his staff would have an intervention. I'm an extremely stable genius. You know, she's a mess. We'll also look at the crisis at the border. We traveled to El Paso and talked with 2020 presidential contender Beto O'Rourke. Also joining us, Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd. Senate Homeland Security Chairman Ron Johnson is just back from a visit to migrant detention centers. And Democratic Senator John Tester is also a farmer. He'll weigh in on the president's tariffs and new farm aid package. Plus, we'll have analysis on all of the news coming up this Memorial Day weekend on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He's running for the Democratic presidential nomination, and we caught up with him yesterday in his hometown of El Paso on the border of Mexico. So there are about 16,000 migrants in U.S. detention facilities right now. What should happen to them? Most of those asylum-seeking migrants pose no threat or danger to the United States. We know from past history that when we connect them with case managers in a community, they have a 99% chance of meeting their court dates and their appointments with ICE. And it costs us a tenth of what we pay to keep them in detention and in custody. So in other words, catch and release is something you support? No, I wouldn't call it catch and release. I'd call it uh, helping those who are seeking asylum in this country to follow our laws. If at the end of that process they must return to their country of origin, I want to make sure that they follow our laws and go back to the country from which they they left in the first place. I think we've got to ask ourselves, during an administration that has caged children, that has deported their moms back to the very countries from which they've fled, that have continued this separation that is visiting a cruelty and a torture on these families, that has lost the lives of six children within our custody, Mm -hmm. whether or not we can do better and live our values and whether or not there will be a reckoning and accountability for this. But but just just to put a fine point on it, you're talking about 16,000 people in custody right now. Are you saying that migrants who cross and do so um, not through port of entry, who are here through illegal means, essentially, that they would not be detained in an O'Rourke administration? Not necessarily in in every case, but but I think the vast majority of families and children who are fleeing the deadliest countries on the face of the planet, who are seeking asylum in this country, they don't try Mm -hmm. to flee uh, arrest, uh, they don't try to evade detection. Those families pose no threat or risk to this country. Should they be detained together, those families? Those families, if they pose no threat 
to this country or the communities in, in which they are apprehended should be released with a case manager who ensures that they follow our laws, that they attend their court hearings, that they meet their appointments with an ICE officer. I want to ask you about your campaign. There are some headlines I'll read for you. The Washington Post this week cited brutal new 2020 numbers for Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke blew it. The Beto balloon bursts. What are you doing wrong? Do you think you're doing something wrong? Look, I feel really good about the way that we're campaigning. Uh, I'm going to people where they are in their communities. Uh, no me importa. I do not care how red or blue, rural or urban. I'm showing up to listen to them. And what they're telling me is they want this country to come together around our shared challenges. So I'm listening to them uh, more than I am to the headline writers. You have, though, relaunched, acknowledging that things weren't registering for you. Um, you've apologized for the Vanity Fair cover. Can you escape some of those first impressions of you? Listen, uh, the, the only way that I'm going to have any chance is to go everywhere, meet with everyone, leave no one behind and take no one for granted. So, so that's what I'm focused on. Is so, it saying, though, that you, maybe with the Vanity Fair cover and, and the big launch that you looked out of step? I don't know about that. Um, listen, um, the opportunities that I've had to meet with people, um, the snarkiness, uh, the cynicism, all that is gone. Um, it's, it's folks wanting to know that we're going to find a way to uh, ensure that every child can go to school without worried about whether or not they're going to come home at the end of the day in this epidemic of gun violence. Having those conversations on the issues that are most important to them is what drives me. It, it uh, produces this relentless energy that we've got in our campaign to make sure that we connect, draw people in, and meet these historic challenges together. So I feel really good about doing this. And listen, there are going to be highs and lows in, in this campaign. There have been in every campaign than I have ever run. But if we stay focused on people, the very reason that we're doing this in the first place, bringing them in and allowing them to contribute to the solutions to the challenges that we face, I don't think there's anything that can stop us. Do you think the party needs generational change? I'm driven by the people who see the urgency of this moment, who, who understand that we've got 10 years left to us to meet this challenge of climate change, after which these floods and fires and droughts and disasters will pale in comparison. Uh, those students who are talking to me uh, about gun violence, um, the folks who demand that we have universal, guaranteed, high-quality care, all I know is that we need to match that with a relentless energy that brings in people uh, who may have been left out before. And what I, ha I hope that I've been able to demonstrate in Texas, uh, leading the largest grassroots campaign in our state's history, is that we were able to do that. It sounds like you're saying yes. It sounds like you're saying you need more sort of revolution versus the idea of restoration. You need a young candidate. Is that what you're saying? Someone like you and not a Joe Biden or a Bernie Sanders who are in their 70s? We need to be able to bring in new energy. We need to be able to bring in new voters. We need to make sure that this democracy, so badly damaged, works for everyone. All I'm saying is that the way that I campaign, um, this, this relentless pursuit of people wherever they are, mm -hmm. learning their stories, incorporating what's most important to them in their lives into this campaign and into the service that I want to perform for this country is what we need at this very divided moment. So that's the way that I offer my service going forward. Do you support this latest bailout of farmers? From listening to farmers that I've met all over this country and especially in Iowa, they're not looking for bailouts. They want to connect with those markets that they have worked a lifetime to establish markets that are now closed to them because China. of this trade war, because of these tariffs. They're no longer able to sell to the rest of the world. They're no longer able to make a profit mm -hmm. doing what they do best, and they will not be able to pass these farms and ranches on to the next generation. So yes, in, in the short term, we absolutely have to make sure that they're okay. Um, but we should never have been in this place in the first place. And, and what we see right now is yet another example of President Trump being both the arsonist who created this problem in the first place and the firefighter who wants the credit for addressing it through this bailout. Who is America's greatest adversary right now? We face a number of, of adversaries uh, on, on the world stage, from ISIS to, to North Korea to Iran. And yet, the adversary that has successfully invaded this country through our democracy, Russia, 
through their leader, Vladimir Putin, is the country and the person who this president holds closest. After the Mueller report was released, our president called Vladimir Putin, spent an hour on the phone with him, described the resulting report as a hoax, giving Putin a green light to further interfere in our democracy. We've got the most dangerous person who's ever held office in the White House right now, who's inviting the involvement of our, our greatest adversaries. And we've got to be able to stand up, not as Democrats, but as Americans to this challenge. And so I want to make sure that we do that. Can you say one nice thing about President Trump? Listen, um, when I was first elected to Congress, the greatest challenge that we faced here in this country, uh, and especially in this city, was the inability for veterans to be able to get in and see a mental health care provider. It was producing a crisis in suicide that is claiming 20 veterans' lives a day. As a member of Congress, we wrote legislation to improve access to mental health care for veterans, worked with Republican colleagues to get that done, and that bill was signed into law by President Trump. I agree with him on almost nothing, but the fact that we were able to find the common ground to get this done, to serve those who have put their lives on the line for this country, is something that I'm grateful to him for. Uh, I want to quickly ask you about some of those things re regarding veterans. Um, do you think President Trump was right to send these 1,500 troops to the Middle East to counter the Iran threat? No. Um, President Trump is escalating tensions, is provoking yet another war in the Middle East, where we find ourselves already engaged in war in so many countries, in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, not too far from there in Libya and in Afghanistan. So we don't need another war. We need to find a way to work with allies and partners, and in some cases with our enemies. So do you doubt the U.S. intelligence that said there was a threat on the ground to U.S. forces in Iraq? I, I have a really hard time believing this administration and believing a, a president who has so wantonly lied and misconstrued the facts at every single turn to his own gain. Um, I'm, I'm suspicious of a, a national security team that has so often called for war. Um, you have someone in, in Bolton who has publicly said that he wants regime change in Iran. Um, the body count in, in that kind of war on, on both sides will not be measured in the hundreds or the thousands, but the tens or hundreds of thousands. If there is a peaceful alternative to this, and I know that there is, then we must do everything within our power to pursue it. And that's what I would do in my administration. I'd stick up for our values, make sure that we defend our allies, protect the lives of our fellow Americans, but do that peacefully where we can. Otherwise, we will produce more wars, more veterans coming back to this country, seeking the care that they are being effectively and functionally denied today. Um, I think we need to do far better going forward, and I know that we can. Lastly, there are 12,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. You hear almost no discussion of the war that continues to rage there. How do you handle that? Do you bring those troops home? Yes. When? We've got to end our war in Afghanistan. How? Um, We've got to make sure that we satisfy the conditions that first led us to go to war in the first place, that those who perpetrated 9-11 are brought to justice, that Afghanistan is never again used to stage attacks on the United States of America or Americans. We have satisfied those conditions. Now it is time for us to work with the partners in the region to produce a lasting peace and stability and bring our U.S. service members back home. And that includes the Taliban, brokering a peace deal with them and bringing them into the government? Sometimes you don't have the fortune of working just with your allies, your friends, or the people with whom you agree. In order to produce peace, you sometimes have to negotiate and work with your enemies. And that's true for Afghanistan. Our full interview with Beto O'Rourke will be on our website at facethenation.com. We'll be back in one minute with a former colleague and friend of O'Rourke's, Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd. Don't go away. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. 
Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We're back with Texas Congressman Will Hurd. He's a Republican who sits on the Intelligence Committee, and he joins us this morning from San Antonio. Uh, Congressman, good to have you here. We, we mentioned Beto O'Rourke is a, a friend of yours. Um, is he wrong when he doubts the intelligence that the Trump administration has presented about the threat from Iran? I've seen the intelligence. It's very credible intelligence. This intelligence was produced by hardworking men um, in the CIA, um, in our intelligence community. And this is credible. It's 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 solid. And it's our military leaders that are asking for some of these moves uh, to make sure that we're protecting our our folks in that region. Um, I don't think anybody wants to go to war uh, with with Iran, but we need to be prepared uh, to protect our, our troops that are already there. Uh, thank you for that. I know uh, having worked at the CIA, you are um, particularly attuned uh, to the intelligence community. And, and I want to ask you about this decision the president mm-hmm. has made to allow the attorney general to have access to declassify some of the top secrets in this country. Um, as a former CIA officer, does it mm-hmm. does it trouble you? Does it concern you that there is risk here giving someone who is not in the intelligence community mm-hmm. access So, first and foremost, making sure the intelligence community retains the ability to determine if and how intelligence is declassified is is critically important. Uh, My read of this um, order by the president giving the attorney general this this power, um, it still says that the attorney general has to abide by an Obama-era executive order that that determines that the head of the agency that has the information, so if the if the intelligence is from the CIA, then the, then the head of the CIA gets to determine how that intelligence is ultimately used. Um, one of the things, so, so, so making sure uh, that continues, and, and why uh, you hear a lot about protecting sources and methods. Uh, we have to remember when you're getting intelligence, you're getting it oftentimes from ongoing operations. And so if you reveal a piece of information, our allies might be able to determine where that information comes from. You can put somebody who's sharing that information with us, their life, their family's life at risk, and then it we prevent from ever having uh, that intelligent source in the future. So that's why um, this is this is so important. But also, you know, the United States is unique in that we have civilian oversight of our intelligence community. Um, we give our leaders of the intelligence community uh, a lot of responsibility and making sure that our leaders of the intelligence community are, are crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's is really important. When I travel across the world and my duties on the intelligence committee, I often have many of our allies coming and asking us questions about their intelligence services because they know how integral this well, civilian well, oversight is, actually is. That is why there is some concern here that this could be allowing for some political spin, for weaponizing of intelligence to put this power in the hands of an attorney general who is opening an investigation into the investigation Mm -hmm. uh, of Russian meddling. Uh, Do you think it's reckless? Well, politicization of intelligence is indeed reckless, and that's something that we shouldn't do. But civilian oversight is, is still important. Um, and so this, it's unfortunate that over the last couple of years, uh, we've been having this back and forth about the intelligence community. And they're, you know, in essence, being uh, abused in, in public. Uh, we need to make sure that the men and women in our intelligence community are able to go out and do their information, collect their information. When they're meeting with assets, they need those assets need to know that the information that they're providing is going to be protected. I believe, again, this is supposed to be following this executive order from, mm-hmm. from the Obama administration to make sure that the head of whatever agency is involved in decision on how to declassify this information. And so so this is civilian oversight is, is important. But we also need to be moving beyond this conversation. There's one thing that Republicans and Democrats agreed up here is that the Russians did try to influence our election and that they're going to 
try to do it um, mm-hmm. again in the future? And how are we dealing with disinformation? Um, how, right. Do we have a strategy on how to deal with disinformation? We have to be prepared um, for this e- eventuality. And also the, the politicalization of, of intelligence that hurts those, those men and women. It's Memorial Day weekend, and Margaret, right. you know that. And, and you know, I, I'm always thinking about Mike Spann and, and Jen Matthews, my, my former colleagues um, mm-hmm. that were in the CIA and, and died in, in service. The reason we haven't seen another major attack on our homeland like we saw on September 11th is because of the men and women in our intelligence services that are still operating as if it's September 12th. And we need to make sure that we are providing them with the tools they need to continue to do their job and keep us safe. Well, thank you for that reflection. You you did bring up disinformation, so I want to ask you, as a Republican, did it trouble you that the president himself and some of his allies were tweeting out an altered video of the Speaker of the House uh, making it sound like she was slurring her words. Um, is this does this step beyond the pale for you in terms of going beyond your usual political mudslinging? Right. There's a lot of things that's concerning with that video of, of Speaker Pelosi. And it was um, just slowed down to make it seem like she was having a hard time speaking. This wasn't even a deep fake. You know, we've been hearing a lot about deep fakes, which is the use of artificial intelligence in order to create something new. In this case, at least we had the original to compare the two and recognize that it was it was it was doctored in a, in a former fashion um, in a in an in soon. And I think within months, we're going to be able to see this deep fake technology continue uh, to grow. And we're going to see that more and that and we're not prepared. We have old laws um, to to decide how you handle this information. You have leaders that don't understand um, how this technology can be used in the future. Um, This goes back into this whole conversation around disinformation and how are we dealing with it? And it's not just the government alone. It's not just Mm -hmm. uh, the social media companies. It's also the media academic involved in trying to do this. And also, we can't be promoting this stuff. And if you can't tell the difference uh, between a doctored um, piece of information and not, um, that's that's troubling as well. Right. Uh, Which is why I asked you if, as a Republican, you object to the president disseminating some of that. And the answer, Uh, it sounds like, is a yes. You shouldn't disseminate information that you know is yeah. ultimately is ultimately doctored, um, and and this is this is going to escalate um, this debate and this fight. And again, this is something yeah. that gets at the heart of our our democracy. And when it comes to disinformation, thank you very much, Congressman Hurd, for joining us today. We'll be back in a Always. moment. to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We'd like to now bring in Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, and he joins us this morning from Green Bay. Uh, Senator, I know you just came back from the border where you were yesterday in that area where we saw that migrant death just this week due to an outbreak of the flu. I know dozens have been quarantined as a result. Are you concerned that there will be more deaths like this because of overcrowding? Uh, Good morning, Margaret. Well, first, let me say that the the men and women of our Border Patrol and other volunteers from the federal government are doing a heroic effort trying to deal with this humanitarian crisis. Uh, Yeah, we're all concerned. They they had an outbreak of flu. They believed it might have been H1N1, uh, highly dangerous. uh, But the the process centers are are back open, but they are grossly overcrowded because of the unbelievable uh, situation on the border, the out-of-control nature of it. Uh, just, just the last three weeks, on average, about 23,000 
women, women, children, and men are coming over across the border illegally as family units. There's unaccompanied children, 22 to 23,000 a week. Uh, we're, we're almost eight months into this fiscal year, and we've got, we're up to about 400,000 in total. And if it continues at this pace, in one year, we'll have about 800,000 unaccompanied children, people crossing the border illegally as a family unit. 800,000. So this is overwhelming our system, and we have to stop it. We, we have to change our laws to stop it, rewarding and incentivizing people across our border illegally. But, uh, Senator, I, I hear your concern here, and the Assistant Secretary raised it last week on this program, and yet... Congress went home for recess without allocating any money to this border crisis. And in fact, Republicans had agreed to strip it out of the disaster relief bill. How is that possible? Well, first of all, I've been advocating to make sure that the Department of Homeland Security and HHS get the $4.5 billion emergency spending request. They need that money. They need it desperately. Uh, so hopefully when we get back in, in session after the Memorial Day holiday, uh, that funding will be quickly appropriated so that uh, those individuals that are doing such a, you know, just they're doing the Lord's work down there together with, uh, you know, people like uh, Sister Norma uh, working with uh, Catholic Charities, other people trying to respond to this humanitarian crisis. But again, yeah. we are allowing this to happen. There's our broken laws that are, that are sustaining this wicked business model, these, these uh, human traffickers let's, that are probably pocketing 3 to $4 billion per let's, year. Let's we have to change this, our laws. Let's finish this conversation on the other side of this break. Stay with us. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Uh, Senator, was it a mistake for the president to say this week that he won't work with Democrats until they stop the investigations? Well, my guess is he's just staying reality. It's going to be pretty hard to pass legislation when that's all the House is really doing. Uh, I warned voters ahead of the 2018 election that if you put Democrats in front of, in charge of the House, all you're going to be talking about is investigations, talk of impeachment, and it won't be about governing and creating greater prosperity for Americans. And that's kind of what we're seeing play out here. It's, it's very unfortunate, particularly when you take a look at things like an emergency spending bill that, that we need for some of these disasters, that we need for you know, getting the situation at the, at the border under control. Uh, when you talk about the fact that we have to fix our horribly broken immigration system so we can stop or reduce this flow. You know, I heard Better O'Rourke saying, well, all we have to do is assign a case officer to every one of these families. Well, that'd be about 400,000 case officers or people that can handle 400,000 families this year alone. We don't have that kind of personnel. So the goal of our policy should be to reduce that flow. And in the House, they're just talking about impeachment investigations. It's very unfortunate. Well, it, that kind of brings us back to the point of, of why this impasse could be so damaging. Um, I want to ask you, though, about something the Trump administration decided to do. You sit on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Secretary Pompeo decided uh, to essentially bypass the committee and go ahead with these sales of weapons to Saudi Arabia and other countries. Uh, do you, does this trouble you that this didn't go through the regular pro process here? This just speaks to the ongoing tension between Congress's war uh, authorizing powers and the president's powers, constitutional powers when it comes to foreign policy. 
you know, co- Congress is pretty dysfunctional. It doesn't act very quickly. Sometimes the administration, which is why the founders very intelligently vested so much power in the presidency to act quickly in reaction to growing threats. And uh, I agree with uh, Congressman Hurd. The, the intelligence uh, was, was certainly, uh, from my standpoint, concerning. And I think the, the administration has handled this uh, pr- pretty well. They're doing everything they can to deter further aggression by Iran. And let's face it, Iran but, but is the line after you, you the Middle East. Committee. And that doesn't trouble you. I, I wouldn't. No, no. Listen, I, I think they've they've notified the chairman and the ranking member of this. Okay. Uh, Congress often operates way too slowly to react to situations that we need to react to to prevent war. And that is what this administration, I think, has done. They've deterred more malign actions on the part of Iran. I support the administration. Quickly, I want to ask you about the president's tweet here. He's in Japan and he, talking about war, said that Kim Jong-un's testing of these short-range missiles doesn't bother him, even though his national security advisor said it violates U.N. resolutions. It alienates the allies, allies like Japan, who could be hit by some of these short-range missiles. And then he praised Kim for insulting Joe Biden. Is this appropriate? Well, certainly uh, North Korea is, is one of the real problems uh, that we're having to deal with. And uh, it certainly concerns me when, when they're doing any kind of testing. The fact that uh, they haven't been testing you know, nuclear devices or, or longer-range missiles is a good thing. Uh, this is a very difficult issue. Uh, administrations on, on both sides of the political spectrum have tried to deal with this. President Trump trying to do it in a somewhat, deal with it in a somewhat unorthodox style. I hope he succeeds. All right. Senator Johnson, thank you for joining us. We want to turn now to Montana Senator John Tester. He is the top Democrat on the Veterans Affairs Committee, and he joins us this morning from Bozeman, Montana. He is also a working farmer, which is a unique perspective. And I do want to get get to you on some of those tariff issues. But first off, this is, of course, Memorial Day weekend. There were four veteran suicides at VA facilities in the month of April alone. There are about 20 a day, according to the last tally I saw from last year. How is this rate not slowing down? Well, the bottom line is, is that we've got to do more. Even one suicide is too many, Margaret. And uh, we have a bill, Senator Moran and I do, to really kind of take mental health outside the box for the VA to be able to include things like yoga, to include things like equine therapy, other things that that have been proven to be able to work for folks who have mental health issues. And it also deals with telehealth uh, for rural areas like my state of Montana and other rural states around around this country. But the truth is, is what we've done hasn't been enough, Margaret. And we've got to do more. It's why we need to get Senator Moran and my bill across the finish line. If we're able to do that, it gives the VA some more tools to get more uh, uh, to get more methods out there to be able to, to deal with our veterans. Uh, but we have failed so far. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Congress has given the VA, uh, I think, some good tools to use. Uh, they need to step it up even greater than before. And by the way, the other thing that needs to be done is we need to remove the stigma from this so that the people who do have problems do come forward. Because oftentimes, many of these suicides happen and, and the VA, they haven't, they haven't taken advantage of the access to VA care. All right, Senator, thank you uh, for that. Um, I, I want to ask you, though, as we mentioned, you're a working farmer. I think you're the only one in the Senate who's actually yeah. working the farm himself. Um, the president had a $16 billion bailout for farmers. This is the third round so far. Will this make up for the kind of financial losses you're seeing in your home state? It's a Band-Aid. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And there are some folks that are up against the wall, way too many folks. We're seeing uh, a, a lot of folks that have been filed for bankruptcy in, in production agriculture. Uh, but it is a Band-Aid. Uh, farmers want to get their check from the marketplace, not from the federal government. Um, and as a previous uh, a person said, you know, the, the fact is the president has created this problem and then he turns around and, and writes out a $16 billion check on the taxpayer dime. Uh, I'm not saying it isn't needed. It absolutely is needed in a lot of cases where folks are up against it. But the truth is, is that the reason we have bad commodity prices right now at the farm gate is because we got a president who went into a trade war with, without a plan, without our allies, and it ends up where family farm agriculture ends up paying the price. And uh, that doesn't help with food security, and it certainly doesn't help with our economy. Uh, Senator Grassley uh, reportedly will be applying for some of this aid for his family farm. Will you be tapping into it and apply for it as well? 
Well, we'll see how it's going to be divvied up. Uh, I imagine wheat is going to get part of it, and we do raise grains on my place, and so uh, we will see. But uh, uh, look, our place has been hurt by these tariffs, just as every other farm has been hurt by these tariffs. And uh, we, we will see as it goes, but I intend to, to take advantage of it because it'll help pay the bills. How long can farmers go before you see the bankruptcies uh, that you have been predicting? I think we're already starting to see it. Uh, look, I serve on the banking committee, too, and a lot of the bankers told me a year ago that farmers had about 18 months uh, before we started seeing a real disaster in, in ag com- country. I think we're already seeing that ag disaster coming around. And uh, and the sad part about this wasn't caused by weather events. It wasn't caused because... Uh, consolidation in the marketplace and prices were low and inputs were too high. Uh, What we've seen is we've seen a president who's acted responsibly in the trade. He had a plan to hold China accountable, but yet didn't know how to implement the plan to hold China accountable. And in the end, we don't have an end game. And uh, and, uh, farmers have been paying the price. I've said this before, Margaret, maybe Mm -hmm. said to you before, but we should have done this through the financial system. We should have had our allies on board. China's been a bad actor, but not just the United States, to countries all over the world. Let's bring the world community together and apply pressure instead of just the farmers of the United States of America. You gave a speech this week making the case uh, that Democrats actually do have a shot at winning back rural America. Um, But you said they can't promise things that don't make sense, like free college or jobs for everybody. Have you seen a Democratic candidate that fits that description for you? No, but I've seen some policies come out of some Democrats that fit that uh, that uh, description. And I think it's important that we stay connected with reality. College is too high uh, and we need to figure out ways to drive it down. But I'm not sure that there doesn't need to be skin in the game if you go to college. The same thing with health care. Uh, and, and one of the proposals that was put out said you're going to have a, 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 a job. The job's going to pay uh, livable wages. Uh, you just can't. You just can't do that. It's it's not it's not that easy. It'd be great. It's great to say it, but it's hard to implement it. So I, let's stay let's stay grounded in common sense and move forward. And I've seen the candidates, by the way, across the board that are running for president uh, do do a Your pretty good job of, of staying of grounded. My home state governor is one of them. That is correct. Yep. And, and so the bottom line is that whoever comes out of this 24, 25 people who are running for president needs to be able to connect with rural America. And you do that by applying common sense. Are you going to endorse your governor? Uh, I'm going to be endorsing. Uh, I will tell you this, Margaret, it's going to happen in the next week. And uh, uh, hopefully you'll be the first to know. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Senator Tester. We'll be right back with our it's panel. It's a pleasure talking to you, Margaret. Thank you very much. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. now for some political analysis. So we're welcoming our panel. Molly Ball is a national political correspondent with Time Magazine. Joel Payne is a Democratic strategist and appears on our digital network, CBSN. So we'd like to welcome him to this broadcast for the first time. And Ed O'Keefe, of course, you know him. He's our political correspondent. Um, Molly, Beto O'Rourke, we went out to sit down with him and it's the middle of essentially a reboot of his campaign. What does he need to do to rebuild support? 
Uh, well, I'm not in the business of uh, giving political advice, but it's clear that Beto, having come into this race with a lot of buzz, has stumbled a bit and is having trouble defining himself in this vast field of more than 20 Democratic candidates. So he's got to find a way to stand out. They all do. That's why you have so many candidates mired in single digits behind the clear frontrunner, Biden, and Bernie, who seems to be holding his own in second place. And then there's just a lot of churn. So none of these polls are predictive at this point. It's so far out. But they do show you a portrait of a Democratic primary electorate uh, that kind of doesn't know where to go. They haven't really been impressed with any of these candidates. They're still evaluating. I think the debates are going to be very crucial because when I go out into the early primary states and I talk to Democratic voters, what they're saying is, well, I don't not like anybody so far. They just want to be impressed. They want someone to sweep them off their feet. They really want someone they can believe in. And it's less, I think, about ideology or demographics or even generation than just wanting to find that candidate that everyone can rally around and be inspired by. Uh, Beto, had a shot at that. He's a very charismatic candidate, a very charismatic politician. He hasn't so far impressed the primary electorate uh, with those qualities. And Joel, why is that? And, and how do you differentiate yourself when there are two dozen of you running at once? Well, I think there it is, right? There's a lot of people competing for that space. And in a lot of ways, Pete Buttigieg has kind of stolen some of that, that Beto energy that we were expecting him to enter the field with. I thought it was so interesting during your interview that he stumbled a bit when you asked him about the generational change question. Um, that was a layup for someone like Beto O'Rourke. That's the, that is his place in the field as the generational change candidate. And in a lot of ways, it's what Pete Buttigieg has stolen from him. So I thought that was an interesting pass that he made to not affirmatively answer that. So what's he? What's he? What's he waiting for? Right? He's in the low single digits, mm-hmm. and there's nothing to lose by saying, "Yeah, we need someone younger, someone different, someone who isn't as well known in Washington." It was. It was weird. It's. 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 You know, he's he's got the sizzle. He hasn't grilled his steak yet, and it's just <laughs> fascinating to me that. Uh, that he just didn't take that, and he seems to continue to sort of just speak in these generalities. You've got plenty of time, right? What, 10 months, I think, roughly, until we start voting in February in Iowa? Uh, he probably has till late summer to start coming up with some specifics. One of the things that's helped distinguish anyone other than Biden and Bernie is come to the table with some specifics. Do your homework on one or two issues and show voters, I've thought about this, here's a detailed plan on what we would do, how we pay for it, he hasn't put as much time into that yet. And and I did press him on immigration because yeah. he has uh, emphasized that he's the only candidate who grew up and is adjacent literally to Mexico on that border. Um, and in our online version, you'll see some of that detail. It, it wasn't as specific as, say, uh, Julian Castro, who right. said clearly decriminalize border crossings. Or Kirsten Gillibrand, who on this program last week said clearly do not detain migrants when they cross that border. I mean, is there an immigration portion of this debate that that you get backlash for if you stake out a hardline position? He seems to think so. Um, and I, you know, maybe it's because he's thinking of the general election. Because, for example, you asked him about catch and release. The president has made that uh, policy something that he's trying to shove aside and, and suggest has been wrong. What he's essentially advocating for, O'Rourke, is catch, release, and track, which is take the asylum family, <clears throat> assign them a caseworker, and make sure they come back for their hearings. Well, that's expensive. That requires hiring thousands more people. He says it's cheaper than building a wall. But as he should know, having served in Congress for six years, uh, those details are what really starts to muck this up. And so he hasn't presented yet, at least, a detailed plan to do that. Um, and, and is certainly not as detailed as some of the others in the field so far. And speaking of Congress and doing things or not, do we understand what the president and Speaker Pelosi did this week as simply saying, Don't look here. Nothing's getting done for the next two years. No, I think the president uh, saying that he was walking away from the table and saying that they aren't going to do anything until the investigations stop. That's just not true. The investigations aren't going to stop clearly. Uh, and there's stuff that they have to get done. And in fact, they came very close to getting that disaster bill done this week. And it's going to get done either next week while they're on recess or when they come back after that. So there's stuff they've after that, they've got to do all of the budgeting. They've got to do the appropriations bills. They've got to raise spending caps. They've got to raise the debt ceiling, all of this stuff that if they don't do it, we'll get another shutdown. Uh, so I don't really take the president at his word that he's walking away from that table permanently. Uh, and what Nancy Pelosi said uh, after 
he threw what she termed a temper tantrum. She claimed that it actually had nothing to do with him being peeved about her saying the word cover up or about all of these, all this oversight. Uh, she says it's really that he didn't do his homework for that meeting. He didn't do what he said he was going to do in their previous meeting that went so well when they agreed to spend $2 trillion in public money on infrastructure. He was supposed to come back with a way to pay for it, and he didn't. So he walked out and he had that pre-made sign with the numbers on the Mueller investigation. They weren't numbers about roads and bridges. There was He had decided in advance that he was going to make a statement about the investigations and the oversight. But on a very basic level, the president has not yet accepted that there is a competing power center to him in Congress now. Mm-hmm. We saw that in the shutdown. He had two years with a Republican Congress that would basically do whatever he wanted. That's not the case anymore. It's made his life more difficult, and he hasn't quite accepted that. And Joel, what the administration w- would point to and accuse Speaker Pelosi of is losing control of her own caucus, or almost, because she's under all this pressure to go ahead with impeachment. Is this just a game of, of chicken here? I mean, what, what is happening within the caucus? I'm not buying any of what I saw this week. This was a proxy war between Donald Trump, who cannot pay for this infrastructure bill that he committed to a few weeks ago, and between Nancy Pelosi, who's having a hard time holding back an increasingly agitated caucus who wants to go after the president on impeachment. And, you know, there were a lot of reports about that meeting that Pelosi stepped out of where she initially made those cover-up remarks. The reason why she did that was to take the, the attention off the fact that there are some 30-some-odd members of her caucus who actually want her to really get this on the impeachment track. And for the president, again, I don't think he wants to get on the wrong side of those hardline conservatives who are not going to let him pay for this transportation bill. So this was a nice show this week, but I think that this was a proxy war. He made clear after the election, this is a single-track town. We're going to do legislation only. You're not going to investigate me and get to work on things with me at the same time. And he reinforced that this week. But again, he, he cannot have, he cannot afford to, he doesn't know how to have an argument with Republicans over how to pay for something he clearly wants. He'd like to see his name on a bridge one day that he helped fund through a massive infrastructure project, but Republicans don't want to pay for it. And, and he avoided that fight and instead just continued the one his he's been having with Democrats. His own chief of staff won't let him pay for it. His own chief of staff won't let him pay for it. He doesn't have a legislative affairs director in the White House right now to actually work out the details. It's a real problem. He brushed that under the rug and focused instead on the fight he's been having. This manipulated video of Speaker Pelosi, one distorted, the other just heavily edited to make her look not very clear or good. Um, Molly, is this just a step beyond the mudslinging? I mean, Congresswoman, Congressman Hurd seemed to be describing as like, this is the path we're headed towards. Uh, and the risks of it national security wise when they can't even trust the videos they're seeing of their elected leaders on television. Well, in this video, the, these fake videos, both of the ones that you're talking about, were quickly called out, and I think the coverage quickly reflected that, and people were made aware of it. After so, they went viral, though. Of course. I mean, you can't suppress anything, and nobody's talking about government censorship not allowing videos to exist. Uh, but I think the public was well informed that these were not, you know, correct uh, videos. But uh, but at the same time, you know, the difference here is you have a president of the United States who will retweet a video like that. Yeah. And we've seen him do that before, whether they were deceptive or, or false anti-Muslim videos that were coming out of the UK. This is a president who does not have a sense that he needs to be careful or responsible about these things. Rather, he encourages them. He gins them up. And so I think that is uh, the important factor here, even more than the, where the technology is headed, is that you know usually political leaders consider it their responsibility to be careful about what information they spread. Very quickly, Joel, is there a way to steal against this on the campaign to protect yourself? Well, we saw this in 2016. I worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, You're right. It was called out, but still it gets a lot of coverage out there. I think this is about the president being haphazard with his words. I worked in government. We were told everything we said moves Mm -hmm. markets. People's 401ks depend on it. This president hasn't learned that lesson yet. All right. Thank you very much. We'll be right back in a moment. Some of our very best people at the CBS Washington Bureau are retiring this week. Not the people you see on camera, but some of those who make sure that we are seen and heard each week. Bob Schieffer says they're poetry in motion. Like Farrell Becker with great skill and cunning, got all remotes up and definitely running. Key to all that, but never too bossy, the queen of control. 
Karen St. Rossi. Keeping the Books was Steve Marshall's first track, but he switched to outside, never looked back. John Daly's a sound tech, a real superstar. Quiet, but good sound men usually are. And raise a glass to our Howard Brenner. He found us rooms and fed us dinner. A shout-out as well for Dog David Hall. When the building breaks down, that's who we'd call. There is no one kinder than our Morris Banks. So many reasons to just tell him thanks. Gabe Sticks had the guts and knew all the tricks to get us the pictures that really did click. Vincent Ginsburg had the wit and the style, we'll miss his work, and big ready smile. Dennis Jameson, oh my, what a pro, nice guy to boot, we love you, bro. And ditto that, too, about Dan Tutman, who got us the tape and a good joke or two. And Mr. Lou Walker, radio techie, tuned us just right, never was sketchy. And this is the place where I want to explain what we learned in Bob Dole's 96 campaign. When our camera team of Trainum and Dixon, and I tell you it's true, this is no fiction, showed us how to score scoops, and that saved us hours. They just sent Mrs. Dole sweet birthday flowers. And there was George Christian's unbelievable night. When Nixon resigned, George was trapped in the rose garden till dawn's early light. So good luck and good health. It's been quite a ride. We had a great team with you on our side. That's it for us today on this Memorial Day weekend. As we honor those in active duty and those who served or lost their lives in service, as well as their families, thank you. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were 2020 presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke, Texas Congressman Will Hurd, Montana Senator John Tester, and Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow... If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.